Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. So, Kenny Morgan and I were invited um, to, to be a part of this. Uh, not too long ago, um, we did an episode on the postscript where we talked about principles, leadership principles from 2 Samuel, because we were secretly working on material uh, that deals with principles from 1 and 2 Samuel, and as it regards leaders and how leaders should behave and the expectations and the character of leaders, how to identify leaders and and so uh, apparently, uh, apparently Thomas got wind of that and, and invited us to come and do this. And so uh, Kenny and I both teach these books respectively uh, in LFBI. Uh, we've taught them in, in ch- at church and in our Sunday school classes as well. And so we're familiar with the books. We love the books. And we both, you know, uh, feel pretty passionately that this content holds unique insight into the topic of leadership. And... Um, you know, at this, at this conference specifically, the question becomes, what, does, what do leadership principles have to do with the topic of discipleship? You know, what's the relationship? What's the correlation between the work of mentoring and investing in our congregants, teaching them basic doctrines, teaching them how to be functional ministers? What, how does that relate to developing future pastors and elders in our churches, leaders that are capable of overseeing uh, you know, uh, large ministries, and and that's this. Uh, when we disciple, that means that we're developing leaders in our churches. The two things are are more than corollary; they're the same thing. So, you know, I want to start by by just reminding us of what some of the objectives of the Living Faith Fellowship are, because I I believe that though we are kind of a, a small people, uh, we're a collection of of various sized churches. Uh, various levels of development, uh, the narratives of some stories uh, of some churches go back 160, 170 years, and other churches are brand new within the last few months, couple years, and so everybody's in different stages, but all of us seem to have very similar objectives, and those objectives include expanding the work of the ministry of our churches, and that means that as God continues to grow us, that we can scale our ministry out to have greater and greater impact in the community in which we serve. We want to see our churches grow, uh, not by uh, attrition, but we want to see them grow because of evangelism, right? We want to go into our community and preach the gospel. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see them plugged into uh, discipleship. We want to see them plugged into ministry, and we want to watch as our churches expand, and that's one of the major objectives of the fellowship. Another objective would be to expand the work of missions and church planting. And so as we disciple, we know that we are going to, our churches are going to grow, and we are going to be more and more capable of peeling off leaders from our churches and then sending them into other places in the world so that they might reestablish this culture in other places. And so we have a heart. I mean, I think every pastor in the fellowship would say, I have a heart to see my church plant more churches, right? That's a big objective. That's not an easy thing to do. Another objective might be that that we're working to replace ourselves in leadership. As the work of ministry expands, by necessity, there will be, uh, 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 leaders will be tapped in terms of their time and energy. They will need to delegate more of of the work to other people. And they need to know that when those voids appear, that there's someone willing and able to fill that gap. So, so all of these things, they're not easy. But they're very, very important. And in order to fulfill or to achieve these objectives, we will need disciple, uh, uh, disciple, disciples that develop into leaders that are capable of and ready for the various forms of difficult leadership that will be ahead of them. And, uh, and we're not always good at this. We're not always good at this. We're not always good at replacing ourselves in ministry. We're not always good at developing leaders and what happens is um, pastors get tired. You know, I think Pastor Troy did an amazing job last night of explaining what the issue is. 
and, um, and, and, and then calling us to, to consider ourselves counselors in our churches in order to lift the burden off the pastoral leadership, you, you, you may not know it. In fact, your pastors probably don't talk about it much. But, you know, the, the call in Acts is that, that your pastors should be devoting their lives to studying the Word and to praying. That's their primary objective should be doing that with the, with the goal and intention of envisioning the church to win souls. But, but for some of the pastors in this room, 75% of their time, 75% of their energy is spent in counseling people who are struggling. There, there is a need for more leadership in the church. So this, this is not, you know, this is just not just an exercise in talking about leadership. This is a, I think that there's a lot of validity here and there's a lot of need, and so it's, it's worth talking about. So the hope, the hope of presenting leadership principles to a room full of disciple makers is that we might all be more effective in the process of identifying, identifying and training the future pastors, missionaries, and leaders of our churches in our congregations. Okay? And so that's what we're doing. And I'm moving fast because we have a, a lot to cover. Right, Kenny? There's a lot. So... Let's pray, and then we'll get right into it. We're going to, um, both Kenny and I are going to try to present five principles of leadership from First and Second Samuel. And so, um, you know, pray that we can get through that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. I thank you for this, this people who have given up, uh, you know, precious vacation time or, or time with family to be here. Um, there's a lot of people sacrificing a lot of little things. And, and um, Lord, I pray that this time would be worthwhile, that you would speak to them, that your spirit would move, that they would have ears to hear, that they wouldn't be tired because they stayed up late at Applebee's eating buffalo wings. Um, but they would be able to focus their, their, their mind and their heart on what you have for them. And um, that you'd give them whatever it is that they need, that they would be able to walk away from here uh, better prepared to make an investment in their churches. And so, Lord, help us today. We love you. We're trusting you at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, the title of, of this session is going to be The Tale of Two Houses. The Tale of Two Houses. And I don't know, some of you may or may not be familiar uh, with, uh, with, you know, English literature. But Charles Dickens wrote a novel called A Tale of Two Cities. You may have heard of it. Um, and it's one of the most highly acclaimed sagas of Western literature. The story is set during the French Revolution, and it weaves the lives of two different families together from two different cities into an epic that includes warfare, betrayal, romance, adventure, catastrophe, and heroic sacrifice in the end. Like everything that we want in, in a novel, right? It's there. The story includes soldiers. It includes, includes spies, aristocrats and servants, heroes and criminals. It has everything, everything that we want in a good story. Now, as celebrated as A Tale of Two Cities is, the books of Samuel far surpass any leg legend that Charles Dickens could ever imagine. Not only is the biblical narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel exceptionally thrilling, but it is divinely constructed in order to exemplify two different types of leadership. The books of, of Samuel are structured to draw a contrast. If you're filling in blanks, there's your first blank. So this is your opportunity to focus in. To draw a contrast between rival forms of leadership. They paint for us a stark imagery depicting both godly character and fleshly character. Sacrifice and selfishness, humility and pride, loyalty and betrayal, honor and dishonor. And so we've entitled these lectures, The Tale of Two Houses, in order to highlight these contrasting realities. And you may, have, you may already in your mind know that, that churches often have all these things too. And so there's, you know, not to get ahead of myself, but within our churches, there is kind of a tale of two houses, right? There is a fleshly form of leadership that always exists that we're trying to train out of people in God's word, 
but then there is a godly form of leadership that we want to adhere to. Now, obviously, we have two books here, First and Second Samuel. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, these are still one common book. In fact, historically, uh, before the, 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 the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these two books were, were always together. They, they became separate, and we know them as being separate in our King James, and, and we really appreciate that fact because First and Second Samuel each uniquely represent the rulership of two different men, Saul in, in 1 Samuel and David in 2 Samuel. Now, the house of Saul in 1 Samuel and the house of David in 2 Samuel are supposed to be completely different in terms of what we learn there. The division of the books establishes a natural contrast highlighting the house of a rejected leader in Saul and the house of an accepted leader in David. But beyond that, we see contrasting forms arrive, arise even within the plots of each book because each of these two houses are divided within themselves. So for instance, in 1 Samuel, I think this is on the slide, in 1 Samuel, Saul was divided against the young David, which is a shame because David was the greatest military leader that he had ever seen. And yet Saul found a way to perceive him to be a, a, a saboteur, a, 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 you know, a, a, a treasonous individual. He saw him the wrong way. But so right there, we have, even in the house of Saul, we have a division that takes place between Saul and David. Saul was also divided against his own son, Jonathan, who was the most faithful subject in all of Israel, and yet was perceived to be a traitor. Saul was divided against Samuel. Samuel was his spiritual advisor and confidant, and yet he was perceived to be a betrayer. So we see, we see divisions taking place within, within the narrative that go deeper and deeper. There, there are also divisions within the house of David in 2 Samuel. David, who was in Judah, is divided against Ishbosheth in Israel. There's a division, there's warfare that's taking place. David is divided against Hanan, who disrespected David publicly. I don't know if you remember that story. And David is divided against his own son, Absalom, which is one of the most heartbreaking narratives within the books. And so you see, you see all these divisions that are beginning to take place. And so with, even within the houses, respectively, there are, there are contrasting forms of leadership. Not to mention that both Saul and David were divided against themselves. Right? In their own spirit. At times we saw, see Saul, you know, out the gate, Saul looks like he might be a good leader. But over time, we reveal what was actually in his heart. We begin to see what was actually in his heart. And we discover that Saul was two men. We see the same thing in David. Right? David is a man after God's own heart. But when his heart turns towards the wife of Uriah, David becomes a divided man. Now, beyond David and Saul, there are many more examples of contrasting figures to be considered in the narratives and sub-narratives of the books. Okay, we've got Hannah and Penina. We've got Samuel and Eli. We have Abner and Joab. We have Amnon and Absalom. We have Ahithophel and Hushai. We have David and Sheba, and it goes on and on and on like this. The, the book is full of, of rivaling forms of leadership that paint for us a very, very clear picture. And our prayer is that these various and divergent characters would provide us with the comparison necessary to establish principles for leadership. So we hope this content will help pastors, help pastors to identify leaders in their churches, to, to find the character of leaders, to, 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 to draw those men and women out and to invest in them more intentionally. But we also hope that this content would help growing leaders to better recognize the expectations and demands of leading God's people. So as we start, I want to point out that, that Kenny and I are going to be forced to assume that people are somewhat familiar with these books because we don't have time to survey them in depth. We don't have that luxury. And so over the next three days, we're going to be presenting each of us five principles, uh, me from 1 Samuel, uh, Kenny, 2 Samuel. And this is whittled down to, to I think, I mean, it lo it's looking like we, we're working on this book, and it may have as many as 100 principles in it by the time we're done. And so we had to really focus on the ones that we thought were most relevant to this audience at the discipleship conference. So as we begin our narrative, we are 
you know, just to give us some context, we're, we're, we're squarely in the time of the judges as the books begin. And we're also in a, peri- a period of time when the nation of Israel has turned away from God and has turned towards false idols. The, the, idol, the idolatry of the nations has begun to influence the nation of Israel, and they're beginning to turn to those false gods. The books of Samuel cover approximately 135 years in Israelite history. And first, in, uh, first Samuel is a record of the obedient and holy rule of Samuel, the very last judge, and the transition between that period into uh, the, the monarchy that is going to precede it. So with this, uh, as the brief history, we're going to begin reading uh, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to come in contact with a family, Elkanah and his two wives. And so if, you wanna, if you've got your Bible there, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 1. Not all the verses are going to be on the screen. And so um, just flip around as you see fit. But we're going to start here at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Seems like a good place. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiamzophim. I never get that right. I practiced it even. Ramathiam Zophim of Mount Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. Now, how Elkanah ended up with two wives, we're not told. Uh, We know that while God was not a fan of this kind of arrangement, in the Old Testament economy, there was provision in certain instances uh, for this type of thing. Either way, it sounds terrible. It's like, I mean, Elkanah, he's, he's got his hands full. And that becomes clear real fast. So Elkanah's two wives are quite distinct from one another. They're very different. And uh, they both represent, in our first tale of two houses, They both represent a divided house, a house divided. So what are the observations uh, from these women that we can can grab right away, the things that are most relevant to what we need to know? So first we learn that Penina had children, but but Hannah had no children. That's the first thing that we know, is that Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. We also learn that Elkanah had a tenderness in his heart towards Hannah that he didn't really share towards Penina. Which, again, I mean, this has got to be very difficult. This is not a good situation. But it is what it is. So, so Elkanah loved Hannah a little more than Penina. And this reality transformed Penina into Hannah's adversary. So from here we discover that Penina became an agitator, an instigator. And she used her childbearing as smoke against her perceived enemy. She, she used it as an, as an opportunity to provoke Hannah, which is a, was, is a wicked thing to do. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6 says this, and, and her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Now, we have an adversary who is also provoking us. And he is reminding us of just how Laodicean we are. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is that while most of us in our churches are talking about evangelism, very few churches are doing it. While many of us yearn to bear fruit, very few churches actually are. And so here we have Penina provoking Hannah, and, and verse 7 says, and as he, di- uh, as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. And so when they take this trip to Shiloh to worship, they're, they're, they're going there with the intention of worship, but it's an opportunity in the midst of worship. It's an opportunity for the, to, for the provocateur to poke at Hannah, her enemy. Now I want to point out that the story of Hannah and Penina foreshadows the antithetic dualism that we'll see throughout the entirety of these books. In other words, this tiny story that takes up essentially a chapter, a chapter and a half, if you count the prayer of Hannah, this is foreshadowing for the dualism that exists throughout the entirety of the books. Right? It, it shows us here in this story a, a, 
a, a picture type or a shadow of what we're going to see in the monarchy, what we're going to see in the priesthood over and over again, these rivaling forms of leadership. And so in this short narrative, we're prepared to, to be looking for leadership that we're going to see throughout the entirety of the book or, or spirituality or, or character that we want to see in leaders. And so as we unpack the story, there are some interesting things that we discover about Hannah in light of the constant scrutiny and shame that she faces because of her counterpart. It's here where we begin to glean principles for what we want to identify within growing leaders. And so let's start here. Let's talk about Hannah. Hannah takes her barrenness to heart. That's another blank. So if you're following along, Hannah, she takes her barrenness to heart. Okay, she's not shrugging it off. She's not becoming jaded. She's not becoming uh, comfortable. She takes it to heart. We see her weeping. We see her crying. Her husband can't console her. This person is in, in incredible pain over her circumstance. So that's the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that she takes this to heart. It is hurting her within her, within her soul. She is a grieved individual. The second thing that we see is that Hannah takes her barrenness to God. So not only is she hurting, not only is she grieving, not only is she distraught over the fact that she cannot bear children, that she has no fruit, she doesn't stay in that place. She takes it somewhere. She, do, she doesn't wallow in that. She knows that if her heart, his, her heart hurts this way, the, that she only has one option, and that's to go to God. She knows where the answers are. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9 says, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Now the third thing we see is this. Hannah reevaluates her barrenness in light of a kingdom agenda. She reevaluates her barrenness in light of a kingdom agenda. So she doesn't, she's not just upset because she can't have kids. She's not, she doesn't just know where the answers are. When she goes to God, she begins to recontextualize her barrenness in light of the way that God sees her barrenness. So what she does is she's willing in her heart to say, you know what, God, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than my circumstance. This is bigger than Penina and what she has to say. This is bigger than the fact that I want a child so bad. I want to be a mother. It's bigger than all of that. God, this is about you. This, this is about your perspective. And so because, because I'm grieving and because I come before you and because I know you hold all the answers, now I actually I can begin to see my situation in light of what you want. And so I have the liberty and freedom to vow a vow before the Lord that says, you know what, God, I don't want, just want this child. I want this child for you. And I am going to give this child over to you. He will belong to you. I will sacrifice the very thing that I want, and I'll sacrifice it in your name because I know your kingdom agenda is bigger than my grief. It's, it's bigger than my desire to bear fruit. And, and, and so just pause here for a second. Again, I want to make sure I'm making application. The application for, this, for, for, uh, for us is this. We want fruit. We want to evangelize. We want to see our churches grow, and it grieves us when that doesn't happen. But do we actually have God's perspective? Are we reevaluating our barrenness in light of what God wants? And can, can we begin to see it from his perspective? Do we want it because we want it? Or do we want it because it's what he desires? So here's the principle for leadership that we need. And it's this. This is, an, this is an identifier for pastors looking for leaders. This is what we want to see. Principle number one. Leadership potential is exemplified most clearly in a heart to bear fruit. 
Leadership potential is exemplified most clearly in a heart to bear fruit. In church leaders, what are we actually looking for is the question. See, I'm convinced that every potential leader, every diamond in the rough, is unveiled most explicitly when we observe their brokenness for souls and a heart to disciple people. And this is a character quality that can't be neglected. Because here's the deal. There are so many believers in our churches with so many amazing spiritual aptitudes. They can so, do so many different things. There are people in our churches that are great at administration. They're great at working with children. They're great at, they're great at making sure that people are served, that, that, that people feel loved when they come into the church. They serve in, in so many different ways. There's so many different kinds of giftings. We even talked about it last, last night that our churches are, are the members of our churches are fitly joined together. They're unique in their giftings. And so many times the problem is, though, for pastors is that we're looking for skills. Is that we see a need in our ministry and we're working hard at identifying the person that can fill that need. Who could do this thing that, that I don't want to do? That I, I just I don't like doing, I'm not good at it, and there's a clear need, and we see the need. And so who's, who is the puzzle piece that fits right there? And so we start looking for gifts among our leaders. But here's the deal. Among true leaders, among the ones that are going to plant churches, the ones that are going to be disciple makers for years to come, the ones that are going to, to lead the way that we want them to lead, the threshold must be an unquenchable compulsion to see souls saved. That has to be the root desire of every leader that we promote. If we establish leaders with this proclivity, then our churches are going to thrive in evangelism and discipleship for years to come. But, but without this, we are in danger of replicating leadership that has the potential to vaunt other agendas over the Great Commission. So I don't know about you, but I, I think the attributes we find in Hannah can sometimes be hard to find within our congregations. It's hard to find people who are devoted to soul winning. It's, it's hard to find people who are looking for opportunities to preach the gospel. We are complacent. We are truly Laodicean. Where are these faithful men and women? They're, they're hard to find. It's rare. But when we find it, we have to know that it's the foundational character quality for any potential leader. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the question is, are we looking for leaders who are soul winners? Or are we measuring leadership aptitude by far less significant measurements? We're, maybe, maybe we're focusing on the wrong thing. And, and so here's the deal. We, we have to begin to, to look up across our congregation. You know, we're asking ourselves, well, how do we, how do we grow people up into leadership? How do, we, how do we get these objectives done? And as we look out upon our congregation, we have to ask ourselves, where are the soul winners at? Where, where are the people that are broken and weeping before the Lord because they want to be used? Where are they? And when you find them, I'm not saying every one of them will be a pastor. I'm not saying every one of them will be, will be you know, leading. But listen to me, it's the foundational thing that you need to look for. You've got, you've got to find that. It's critical. But on the flip side, and I, I don't want to get in your business, and I don't want to get overly personal, but here's the deal. As, as pastors and leaders, are we modeling this genuine brokenness? So maybe the problem actually begins with us. We say, well, where are, where are, where are those people? I, you know, I'm having a hard time finding them. 
are, are you desperate for souls? Are you desperate to lead as a broken leader, broken before the Lord, looking for opportunity to have an impact on God's kingdom? Are we evangelizing? Do we model it for the, for the members of our church? You know, Hannah, Hannah overcomes her oppressor, and of course she bears a son, and Samuel's going to go on to be one of the greatest leaders that Israel has ever seen. She dedicates her son to the service of the temple, just as she promised to do. It's a wonderful story that obviously we had to gloss over, but the point is, is this, that, that if we're going to talk about leadership, we need to first talk about whether or, not, whether or not a leader has a heart to see souls saved. Leaders that can't see souls, leaders that see other objectives, leaders that are, are busying themselves with other aspects of church, <clears throat> that's fine. We, we need people to do that work, but, but what we want, we want the primary motivation of every leader in our church to be, how does this impact the growth of God's kingdom? They have to be able to see that. There will be sometimes unique individuals who are so broken over this issue that you can't help but stop and recognize them and consider, is this person built for more? Principle number two, okay, we're moving right along. We're going to talk about Eli and his sons here for a moment. So, so as we continue in the story, we find Hannah's son Samuel ministering in Shiloh alongside his caregiver, the high priest Eli, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel's preoccupied himself with the daily duties of the temple, and he's growing in his relationship with God. And in this part of the story, we find several principles, we'll only focus on a couple, that are significant to understanding leadership. The high priest Eli is, is the prototypical case of a permissive parent, right? We all recognize this is a problem in our world, right? Permissive parenting, people who would rather be friends with their kids than parents to them. It's a common thing. And Eli's an example of this. And in his old age, he had completely lost track of his sons. And as they learned how to perpetrate against God's people, Eli stood in silence in the temple. And so he's given responsibility to Hophni and Phinehas to minister, and yet all the while, they are using their privilege to abuse the people and to abuse the office. And in this way, the sons of Eli became the sons of Belial. And they offended their office in three ways. We're going to look at the three ways real quick of how they offended their office. The first thing is this. They offended the worshipers through filthy lucre. They offended the worshipers through filthy lucre. So it was the custom of the priests in Shiloh to take of the burnt sacrifice. And so that, this is how they fed their families, right? This is how the priests fed their families. And so this, this was the custom is that... that they would, they would capture the food by striking the pot with a fork, and whatever it is that they drew out, that's what they would keep. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came. And while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three, of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. But here's the deal. Hophni and Phinehas instead selected the choicest meats for themselves. And they refused the boiled meat. They, they, only, they only wanted the roasted meat, right? Which I can get with. I mean, who? so we were at the, the taco place the other day who actually likes the shredded chicken over the grilled chicken I, no one does right anyway that's just a, a side point gotta ask for the grilled chicken okay don't be if you don't like the shredded chicken don't get it everybody prefers it off the grill right everybody wants the choicest meat and that's true for Hophni and Phineas as well now this elitist behavior was an was an impediment to the worship of God's people so you imagine these guys walking around, God's people are there to worship. <laughs> They're bringing their hard-earned sacrifice to the temple to worship before the living God. And here these bullies are walking around just taking whatever they want. And so here we have two men that are offending the worshipers 
that are coming to worship before the Lord because of their filthy lucre. And we discover that it kept people from even bringing their sacrifices anymore. People, we learned this in chapter 1, is that people stopped going to worship. They didn't want to go anymore. They're like, at least when we, we worship Ashtaroth, we don't have this problem. You know what I mean? They stopped going. So, so what good was it for the people if the leaders themselves didn't respect the worship? If the leaders don't respect the worship, what motivation do they have to respect the worship? So they lacked motivation because of, of the abuses that were taking place. Two, Hophni and Phinehas offended the worship through refusing the sacrifice. They refused to even make sacrifice. Verse 15, and before they, they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to, the, to, the, uh, to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh uh, of thee but raw. And so, you know, they, they, wanted, they wanted raw flesh so they could go home and cook it the way they wanted. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So by selecting the choice meats, they did that by refusing to yield to the fat burning to the Lord. And so now they aren't just an offense to the people, but they're an offense to God's worship. They're, they're, they're not just getting in the way of people coming to God. They are offending the worship itself. They lack a heart of worship. They don't see a need. This is, this is, this is atheistic behavior among God's people. Three, they offended the ministry through sexual misconduct. Hophni and Phinehas had determined to do evil. And the longer that they, they had perpetrated, the more brazen their perpetration became. By the time Eli was willing to address it, they had already gone so far as to make a habit of having sex with the ministry volunteers that served outside the temple. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of you evil dealings by all this people, nay, my sons. For it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Hophni and Phinehas had completely undermined any innocence and faithfulness in the ministry. They ruined the whole thing. They ruined it. Their elitist behavior evolved to the point where they simply took whatever they wanted for themselves. Their philandry was simply the natural progression of years of, listen, of self-justified freeloading. And so here's our principle, principle number two. Leaders, every single one of us, are always at risk of exceptionalism and elitist behavior. Tell me that's not true. Every one of God's leaders is in danger of compromising and justifying whatever they want to do. And, they, and, and you, over time, you convince yourself that no one's watching. There are too many leaders looking for opportunities in our churches, uh, growing leaders, people who want to lead, looking for opportunities to be within the inner circle. They want to be in the, the back office meetings, to be led into the, the special spiritual club. They want to be seen. They are convinced that there are perks to be had in leadership. There are too many leaders who are above the worship of God. They have unyielding hearts and minds because they are, they are the exception among God's people. And so the way 
many of you certainly see this manifest from time to time, is that they somehow avoid the worship and praise. And they hang out in the lobby and they linger and they pretend like they're doing important stuff. They've got other things to do. And so they're scurrying about, adjusting this and that. It's like, okay, well, let's move up. That needs to be moved there. And, uh, and they're busy doing the most trivial activities that they call important. And all the while, God's people are in the, in the, the, the sanctuary of God, lifting up their vo- voices, and they're looking around, and they're saying, where's elder so-and-so? Where's deacon so-and-so? And it's, it's not right. There, you know, there is no ministry above the worship of God. There are too many leaders who are tired, who have worked hard, who feel abused or burdened by the ministry, and have convinced themselves that they are owed something more than what God has given them. So they adopt some sort of small impropriety, a little here, a little there, no big deal, nobody's watching. And they think they deserve it. And over time, those things evolve into disqualifiable sin. This is, how, this is why so many tired pastors end up cheating on their wives. This is why so many men, leaders, God, God's men, end up taking a little here or there, expensing this, expensing that. That's how we get there. So what can be done to prevent establishing leaders who are prone to to pride and to elitism? Because elitism is the issue here. What can be done? Okay, so I have a few things for you that you can write down or whatever. The first thing is this. We as leaders learn to demystify, we need to learn how to demystify the experience of leading. We, We... Maybe it's unintentional, or maybe it's just what we were taught, but we make whatever's going on in the back office seem like it's, seem like it's special. <laughs> when it's not really that special. We're just trying to figure out who's taking up the offering and who's, who's going to do announcements this week. Right? Like, I think, I think that there is a tendency for our growing leaders to see the next stage of leadership as something magical and mysterious. And what we need to do is we need to demystify that. We need to, to tear down that veil. And we need to let, the, let there be some, some openness in our communication with growing leaders. Like, look, what's going on over here actually kind of sucks. Uh, you, you shouldn't want to be involved in these counseling situations. Like, this isn't as exciting as you might think it is. And so, you know, our, our pastor Sam does a really great job of this. And I've learned so much from just observing him. But he allows leaders at appropriate levels to see behind the curtain because he wants them to see that it doesn't, re- it doesn't actually look like what they think it does. And it's helped me a ton. And so we need to begin to demystify the, the, the experience of leading. Leading is a humble work. And it needs to look that way. So the next thing we need to do is exemplify humility in our own behavior. We need to not act important because we're not important. We are under shepherds. We are, we are, you know, we are as second-class citizens. There's nothing special about any of us. None of us are qualified for this work. So we need to act humble before our growing leaders because we want them to know that that if they're going to participate in this, if they're going to choose this, they need to do it with their eyes wide open. And they need to recognize that it requires humility. It requires that. And understanding that, that it's, a, it's a privilege we don't deserve. And so here's the next thing. We need to avoid excessive honor or privilege for our leaders. You know, we, we, we get in a rut, and, we get in, and, I, and this is another thing that I've observed in Sam. Sam hates to be recognized. Like it... Like he would rather die than have someone bring him up on the stage and applaud him. Now, part of it's his own hang-up. 
But there's a, there is something to be learned in it. Because if, if the leaders are the ones that are always being honored and praised, then what we're doing is we're creating a class system in our churches. And that's not how God sees it. I mean, we know that, right? We know that 1 Corinthians teaches that's not how God sees it. We, our gifting is all equal in his sight. And so we need, to, we need to work at avoiding honor and privilege and maybe work harder at, at, at honoring things that are less, seem less honorable. And here's the third thing. We need to keep each other accountable. Pastors that aren't accountable, they, the flesh is the flesh. And they will put their hand in the cookie jar. We need to hold each other accountable. We need to be in each other's business. No one's above that. Okay, principle number three. Still talking about Samuel and Eli here. Now, after a series of events, God fulfills his promise to remove Eli and his sons from the priesthood, replacing them with Samuel. And what we learn of Samuel is that God has opened the vision to him. After years of silence from God, he is now speaking openly to Samuel and by extension, the nation. It's an amazing thing, amazing transformation we see. Not only that, but Samuel has one of the, the most wonderful reputations of any leader in all of Scripture. I, I love Samuel. Um, do a study on Samuel's prayer life. Just study his prayer life. All of his dialogue with the Lord. It'll blow your mind. He's He's amazing. 1 Samuel chapter 3, 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. How often do preachers quote that? Why? Because it's absolutely brilliant. This man is so faithful to the word of the God, to the word of God, that he doesn't let a single word fall to the ground. Incredible. Samuel grows to prove his leadership to the nation of Israel. And one of the most difficult trials that they face in the book, his testimony of faith empowers him to call the nation back to worship to the worship of God. He, he literally leads the whole nation of Israel in repentance before the Lord in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 3 says, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. This is one of the coolest stories in all the Bible. Samuel shows his leadership through intercession for the weak. And Samuel goes on to lead the nation of Israel in 40 years of peace. They hadn't seen peace in so long they had no idea what it looked like. And he led them in 40 years of peace. Peace. When you look at the tenure of Samuel's leadership, it's absolutely flawless in almost every way. He rejected the sins of his predecessors. He stands above, uh, uh, above his leaders. He was, he, was a, he was part of a righteous remnant, a pioneer of truth and obedience before the Lord. S Samuel was a spiritual survivor. And I, man, I respect that. He was a very unique person, but he had one flaw. He was unique in every way, but one way. One area of Samuel's leadership where he is unmistakably the same as Eli, and that is the area of parenting. 1 Samuel 8, 1, And it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Sound familiar? Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. And they were, they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, and perverted judgment. It's almost a mirror situation. Samuel's two sons are appointed over responsibilities in ministry, and yet they were completely disqualified in their behavior from the office. 
Now here's the deal. Samuel was likely busy running around, visiting the cities. That's how, that's how it was for, for the, high, the high priest. His responsibilities went way beyond the temple. He was visiting other cities. He was judging over people. He was, remember this, the time of the judges. He was very, very active. And he probably was really busy. And he, he probably neglected his family a little bit. And, and, and so in his negligence and his failure to minister to his family, things compounded and there were problems with his sons. And this is why that God insists that pastors rule their house as well. God is trying to head off this very issue among his church leaders. And just like Hophni and Phinehas, Joel and Abiah had vulgarities in their life that affected the trust of the people. For the house of Eli, his sons hindered the liberty of worship. For the house of Samuel, his sons impaired people's trust in the spiritual governance of Israel. They didn't trust the authority anymore. The, the, the authority relationship, the ability to submit was broken. And so the nation's response was to ask for a king. Like, we can't, look, you're getting old, Samuel. Who's going to replace you? We, this is untenable. This is an, un, like, I, I get it. I mean, it was an affront to the Lord because the Lord had set, set judges in place and God certainly had a plan. But I get it in men's reason. Look, we're looking around. We don't like the options. Your sons are terrible. We don't want them leading us. Give us a king. We're fine. We'll just look like the other nations around us. No, we'll continue to serve the Lord. It's not a thing. Give us a king. But it's the behavior of these two sons that, that really ruined 40 years of peace and leadership. 1 Samuel 8, 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and Dharamah and said, said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Principle number three is this. Even good leaders are prone to replicate the weaknesses of the previous generation. Even good leaders are prone to replicate the weaknesses of the previous generation. So in terms of leadership, how do we prevent our weaknesses as leaders? Do we have weaknesses? Certainly. How do we prevent our weaknesses being imprinted on the next generation? Well, the bad news is we can't really do a whole lot about it. <laughs> because as we know, this is a discipleship principle. We disciple good things into people, righteous things, but we also, we also have a tendency to disciple bad things into people, bad habits, bad way of speech, poor discipline. Like when people follow you, they follow you for good and bad. It's true. It's true. It's just how it goes. We are weak, and we are likely to perpetuate our weaknesses the same way we do our strengths. But there are a couple things that we can do to assist our growing leaders. There are, there are a couple things that we can consider. Because we're not completely helpless in this area. And the first thing is this. We should repent before the Lord when we act in weakness or sin. I'm talking to pastors. I'm talking to leaders. When we recognize weakness in ourselves, we recognize, oh man, I, I keep, this, I, I know I'm this is a flaw in my character, and I'm prone to this, and I keep doing it. Well, here's the thing that I see a lot of older followers of Christ do. They say to themselves, well, that's just, my, that's just how I am. They throw their hands up in the air, and that's just the kind of leader I am. Shucks, golly gee. Wish I could do something about it, but I can't. So I'm going to keep leading this way. But what we need to do is we need to learn to repent before the Lord and deal with the weaknesses that are clearly visible, that the Spirit is revealing to us that we're becoming hardened in our hearts to. All of us have those things that we, we tuck away and pretend like they're not there. I know I do that, but it's not a big deal. No, you need to repent. And maybe God will help you deal with your immaturity before it disseminates into your leaders. Maybe, maybe we should stop making excuses for just being the way you are and consider that God wants to refine you too, that he's not done with you yet. 
Your leadership is not some sort of solidified monolith that is immovable. You have to yield. It's only, you're only immovable if, if you refuse to move. So, so we need to learn to be repentant as leaders. And, and whether, that's, whether that's, that's privately or whether that's openly, and that leads us to the next thing, is that we need to be honest about our weaknesses before our leaders. We need to be honest about our weaknesses so that, that those we invest in are able to see that we are not perfect and remind them that they follow God before they follow us. They follow God first. And when we do that, we will liberate them from becoming a caricature, caricature version of us. Because sometimes these weaknesses, they get heightened. Right? With generation to generation, they get heightened and, and more intensified. And so this will liberate them from becoming a caricature version of us and free them to honestly confront areas of weakness in the ministry. Not so that they can come and critique you or put you down, or, or, or you don't want to make the relationship vulnerable or destroy the, uh, the authority that you have, but what you should do is just be honest. Like, hey, this is probably something I struggle with. Pray for me. You don't have to be that way. Neither do I. But be honest in that way so that they can, they can learn how to confront those things in themselves. And as they step into your leadership shoes in time, they can make improvements in the areas that were weak. Sam says this thing. He says, we want ministry to go from strength to strength. And what I understand from that is that each time a leader steps down and is replaced, that ministry should only be better for it, not worse. There, sh there shouldn't be erosion over time. There should be building up and strengthening over time. And, and if your leaders are just a carbon copy of you, well, that's, that has good and bad implications. And so we need to give them permissions to make improvement on their character and let them know that we're not perfect. And now they're going to bring their own weaknesses to the table, that's for sure. But they will learn to be honest about their weaknesses so that the next generation can deal with them too. So ultimately, weakness is just an opportunity for God to use us and to strengthen us. And we have to, we have to position ourselves for that. So, <clears throat> okay, so there's three principles. Um, well, I'm going to cover two more tomorrow. Uh, and then Kenny's going to come up and he's going to cover five himself. Uh, but again, these are kind of all over the place. And so I, I apologize for that. I guess by the book, whenever that, 2024? A Tale of Two Houses, 2024, I don't know. But, but here's the main thing. And this is what we need to walk away with. Is that because we have discipleship ministries, that does not imply that we'll have leaders. And discipleship does not end after 16 or 18 lessons. We have to choose to be intentional in our development of people. What are we looking for in future pastors and church planners and missionaries? What are we looking for? We have to know. So, so we have to learn how to identify real leaders with pastoral gifting. But beyond that, we need to know what to do with them. What, what, what do we do with them? How do we guide them? How do we lead them? How do we show them a better way? How do we strengthen them for what's before them? And so when we talk about discipleship, that is, that's inextricably connected to leadership development and equipping. And I hope we can learn to do that, and I hope these principles assisted you in that way. And so I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to turn it over to Thomas uh, because I believe that he has an announcement. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. There's so much, so, it's so rich. Uh, we could never do it justice. Thank you for giving it to Lord, I pray that everybody would be inspired just to simply read First and Second Samuel and study, study it again for themselves. There's so much there. They don't, they don't need our book. They don't, need, they don't even need these sermons. They need to spend time looking into the mirror of your word. And so, Lord, help them to do that. And I pray that you would grow us all in our abilities to invest 
in uh, the people that we love, that, that we would have vision for souls, that we would have a heart to evangelize and to disciple and to train up leaders and follow, and follow the script that you've given us so that, that we can win the world before you return. <laughs> we just want the opportunity. So God, help us. We trust you with this. In Christ's name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.